Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. I, of course, am your producer and host, Tristan Johnson, and I am co-hosted today by the lovely Romina Adam. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Solid. Sweet. It's good. It's good. It's June. It's June 1st, the beginning of June. Feels nice. And today... It's cold. Today's cold. Last week, 2830. This week, June. Like, last week, May, 2830. This time, June, like, 10. I don't get it. It's cold. And our guest today comes from the Department of Chemistry. I believe that's a first for the for the show. As I far as so. I know... You're I'm, our first chemist. <laughs> we've had a lot of chemical engineers, but no chemists. So, Madalena Kozachuk. Hello. Did I get that right? Madalena, but... Madalena, yeah, okay. Madalena. Okay. Short yeah, right. <laughs> So, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, let's start off with your PhD student. Yeah, currently I'm enrolled in the master's program, but mm-hmm. I plan to upgrade as of September into the PhD program. So, okay. the chemistry department allows you to fast track if you yeah. wish to do that, so... I think that's the path I'm going to go on. You should do it. I totally just did that this month. <laughs> I did the transfer to the PhD thing. I'm like, yes. <laughs> nice. Man, I had to reapply. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different track Get in the arts and humanities than it is in sciences, I find, for that progression. Yeah. Well, I guess like, yeah, we're talking about graduate school here, so how it works. But I think in humanities, you have to have more of an idea of what your dissertation is going to be. Like in science, you show up and your supervisor gives you your dissertation topics in a way. You kind of work together to be like, Oh, like he'll have an idea, he or she will have an idea, and you'll come in there and be like, oh, I like that. And like, maybe we can do this and this. And then you kind of just collaborate and come up with some sort mm-hmm. of study that you could do for four years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or five or six. <laughs> seven, six or, yeah. seven, and then it gets sad seven. and gross. Oh. And we don't like that. <laughs> so well, let's. Before we go down to the dark yeah. wall. So, Madalena, tell us a bit about what kind of work you're doing for this MSc, I guess you're wrapping up right now. My work currently, I'm in the Department of Chemistry. But I have different supervisors across faculties. So my main supervisor, Dr. T.K. Sham, is a physical chemist and he focuses primarily on synchrotron radiation. And then I have another supervisor in chemistry, Dr. Ronald Martin, who's also, he's focused on the physical side of chemistry. He's done a lot of environmental work and he's really open-minded in terms of his research and cross-collaborating with different people, which is where my third supervisor comes in because he's done lots of work with Dr. Andrew Nelson in anthropology. And then I have a fourth supervisor, Dr. Ian Cothart, who's out at the Canadian Light Source at the University of Saskatchewan. So... That's like almost a handful of people. So my work involves bringing all their research interests into one project. We're using chemical instruments, so the synchrotron primarily, to look at artifacts of cultural significance. So with this, we are hoping to determine things like age or materials, what was used, what could be beneficial to conservators at museums in, in across Canada and internationally to preserve artifacts in their space. All right. So, okay, before I get distracted about synchrotron radiation and its potential <laughs> to give me superpowers, how did you end up at the confluence of all of these Well, I've I've always been interested and inspired by the arts. My mom is a professional musician and my dad's a welder. So I guess from the get-go, you have the arts and then materials um, right from the get-go. Going in to university, 
I entered the sciences because I've always enjoyed it, but really had no clue what I was going to do. You know, you enter it thinking you like one thing and then it's like, nope, not, not, not doing that. So I think I was, I was enjoying the chemistry side of things and I was on the Department of Chemistry website under possible careers for chemists. There was an art conservator and, you know, the light bulb went off and was like, this is what I can do. So I started taking art history courses and I absolutely fell in love with the subject. And that's how I ended up doing my double major in chemistry and art history here at Western. Nice. Like, were you the one to contact all these different people from the departments and be like, hey, I really want to bring all your ideas together and like create a project from this? Or like, how did you even get to this project? A, a lot of it in this field is based on networking because there isn't really a department or course basis for technical art history or conservation science as it can be termed. There is some work done up at Queen's University, but that's it for Canada. There is some work in the States, but it's in its primary stages. A lot of people who work in the side of analytical chemistry, when it's applied to artifacts like at the Smithsonian or different institutions in the States, they are all traditionally trained analytical chemists. So going into this, when during my undergrad, I was taking, I believe it was third year analytical, and Dr. Sh- um, Smith, who was teaching the course, said, oh, you should talk to, to Ron Martin. And I think he actually gave a guest lecture during that class too. And he had mentioned arts because he was interested in that. And so I think I pestered him for about a year and a half and I, we hit it off and I did my fourth year thesis project under him. That's how I met Dr. Andrew Nelson. And then Dr. Ron Martin hooked me up with Dr. TK Sham. And I guess he said he'd always was interested in it, but never had a student who was interested in it. So it really all fell into place like really nicely so it just came together it just came together and when that happens you know you gotta hold on because <laughs> stuff like that doesn't come yeah. along too often so when's awesome. come with like supervisor three and four then so my main supervisor tk was from ron and then andrew was involved in that and then because uh, tk helped begin and fund and create the canadian light source out in saskatchewan i believe ian cothard out there my fourth supervisor was a student under tk and so that was that connection there so before okay we'll get into your actual research now <laughs> but before we do that can you define a synchrotron a synchrotron <laughs> what is that is an accelerator and basically you push electrons really really fast in a circular motion and when you have a particle that is accelerated along a circular path you get energy that comes shooting off like sunbeams that come tangentially off of this ring and that radiation that's ejected tangentially is called synchrotron radiation so when you go to one of these facilities it's in a circular building because that's how the electrons are accelerated and then you have these rays that come off and at each end point of that um, emitted synchrotron radiation point you have what are called end stations and at each end station you have different equipment that are geared towards looking at something specific so it could be a certain energy level or it could be at different x-rays how you image the the surface or if it's more three-dimensional that sort of thing And so the good thing about synchrotron radiation that's extremely beneficial to the arts and art like culture sort of material research is that you have, well, in all research to broaden it internationally, then you have a wide range of energy. 
And so you really can look at anything from like a cell and for biology, like in situ that's alive and there still, or you can look at metals that have more necessity for a higher energy. So it really is tunable to anything you want to look at. So the potential for superpowers is low then, right? Well, I don't, I don't know. You might have to put a couple spiders in there to expose it to radiation and then, you know, hope mm-hmm. one of them works. But I don't know. You might not be flying out with the cape anytime soon. <laughs> um, so, like, how, how small do the par- how can the particles be to be put in the uh, accelerator? Well, it's, it's just the size of the electron, right? So those uh, okay. are just accelerated around. So... I hope the chemistry department's not listening. I don't know the size of an electron off <laughs> my head, but very, very small. Very, it's a very subatomic small. particles. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're talking minuscule here. We're keeping here. it late. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> very small. <laughs> okay, smaller than an atom. You know, yeah. Smaller than a bread box. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, there you so go. So, how do you use these accelerators in your project then? So, when I go to one of these facilities, I bring whatever artifact or piece of an artifact I'm hoping to analyze. And what you do is you set it up in line with the beam that comes out, and then you can run an experiment that looks at either spread of elements. So when you expose your sample to this synchrotron beam, you get all the different elements that are in your sample. And then you can say, hey, I'm interested in element X, Y, Z. And then you can focus in and you get actual chemical signatures of these elements. So another thing that the synchrotron allows us to do is you can get what elements are there, you can get what chemical environment they are, because based on the signature you get in the different peaks that you see in your resulting spectrum, is it tells you what's surrounding this this element. So what it's bonded to, then you can break it down, even say what the length of that bond is, and then you can really determine how your material is constructed. Okay. So what advantage would this have over, say, like a gas spectrometer or something like that? So the thing about this is that when you do gas spectrometry, you have to totally disrupt your sample. So you're not going to get something at the end that's reusable, right? So if you pump something into that machine, you're not getting the same thing out. So if you were to take something, like you would have to remove it, say, from a painting or remove it from a sculpture and stick it in that instrument to get that sort of elemental analysis there. The thing about the synchrotron is that you can, there are certain setups that allow you to analyze the whole thing as a whole. So you don't have to take a piece off because when you start talking to people who work in museums, they are extremely protective of their artifacts. And anything that has remotely the sense of damage or change or negative impact is the red lights go off. So that's the thing with the synchrotron is that you don't have to necessarily disassemble your artifact. So what kind of artifacts do you analyze? So up until this point, I've looked at cross-sections of human teeth, cross-sections of uh, sea lion teeth, human bone, and recently we've gotten into, well, we've also done an ivory piano key from the Art Gallery of Ontario, which was really cool. And I have some 20,000-year-old mammoth sitting in my desk that I'm excited to get into that, into the synchrotron. But also recently we're looking at daguerreotypes, which is the first form of the photograph. And so it's a metal sheet, like a copper sheet that's covered in silver. And it's basically you have a chemically superimposed image on top. 
and we're hoping to determine the structure, the chemical structure at the surface, because there's actually very little known about the chemistry of these of these artifacts. So that's the most recent thing that I've gotten involved in, which is in collaboration with the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa and the Smithsonian Institute. So I'm I am super pumped about that project. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So right now you're you have these artifacts, and are you just trying to see how they're composed? Like, what are you really looking at? So with the daguerreotypes, we're hoping to figure out what their surface structure is, so what they actually look like and how their the building blocks of that surface looks like. Stuff like that will be beneficial to conservators in order to know how to chemically treat and preserve these extremely delicate uh, surfaces. Something along the lines of like the bone and ivory work, for example, we are trying to figure out if there's a way to identify if an ivory comes from a marine or terrestrial source based on elemental concentrations for the humans samples. We're looking at trying to understand how different elements are incorporated in, say, collagen or bone production. So it really breaks it down to basic either biological or historical questions that surround these artifacts. Awesome. Actually, I actually have a question about that because, like, you were saying you were working with mammoth, right? Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if, like, you could use that kind of technology to find out whether, say, this was a mammoth that is preserved by desiccation, like it was found like, through desert, or one of the many, many that have been found in the mm-hmm. ice. Because, yeah. like, uh, you were talking about marine life, and I was like, well, mm-hmm. does it have to be liquid water? Like, could a mammoth ivory that's been frozen in ice for three thousand years could it have? Mm-hmm the same bromine effect or yeah well definitely if something is preserved in a state that doesn't change then you're more likely to have something that's representative of the environment that it was in when it was first initiated into that environment i'm not too sure how the chemistry would differentiate but we do know from looking at different peru samples which is where our human Mm -hmm. samples come from that in burial sites there in peru that have say exist in an area that has really shifting tides. If you have water coming up and down in that burial site, you're really agitating those samples. And so those will really be deteriorated down and won't be as well preserved as something that's in a drier region that doesn't experience that great of environmental shift. So something that's preserved up in, say, Alaska in the permafrost Mm -hmm. will hopefully be and is presumed to be more chemically intact representative of the elements that we're hoping to look for to identify that artifact. So what about the tides? I mean, it's more about post-mortem exposure to water? There's, in terms of water aspect of it, in terms of our interest has been based on the bromine production that occurs in marine samples. And so that would be more from its environment that it was in when it was still alive, not when it was buried, although you could then forward it to if it was preserved in a more water pungent environment, then that would obviously be reflected in the artifact itself. But there is a great debate on determining whether an artifact is deteriorated based on age or if it's also you have to think of how the environment affects the artifact when it's been in there for centuries because you could have microbial disintegration going in there and so it's hard there's a very fine line and there's very strong debates on both sides whether you could determine if it's degradation of the artifact itself or if that elements that are present are based on environmental factors leaking into that artifact 
So it's it really is a complex field. What is the importance of you trying to differentiate um, whether these samples were from marine or terrestrial origin? So when we break it down to the terrestrial and marine source, it would be beneficial to people who exist in academic or museum communities because if you have an ivory artifact that you're trying to determine if it's like the provenance of it or whether it came from a certain society or area globally, if you knew whether if it was an elephant or a mammoth versus a walrus tusk, then you could say something about where that material was sourced. And then if you found something, say, and, you know, buried in England or in a, found in a church somewhere, but it was produced of an elephant tusk, then you have to think, well, from a historical point of view, how did this object that, you know, there's no elephants that we known to exist in England, how did this material get to this spot? So you can get things like trade routes, which then give you back into like the history of, of trade in Europe and North America. Stuff like that is what you can extend, extrapolate this science to a more social science uh, viewpoint. And have you found any surprises so far? We just got off to the races, so we're not in as far as that we can make any definite conclusions. We do know that the iceberg is a lot bigger under the water than it's a lot more complex than we initially bargained for, but that's that's research and mm-hmm. that's that's a lot more work for me to do, so keep me busy. <laughs> fun, fun. Mm. You have four more years to work on it, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, I, I, I mean, yeah. No. So, um, okay, so thanks for coming on our show. Um, it was really nice to have you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yes, thank you. That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at gradcastradio, and look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com, and it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week.